Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Would you guys stand with me? Would you open to John 18 in your Bibles or on your apps? I'll be reading from the new, the NIV, but you can read from whatever you prefer. Um, and while you're opening up to that, I, this is narrative scripture. I love narrative scripture. There's so much in it if we're paying attention. Um, and just a little background, Jesus just finished his final teachings to his disciples, and so now we get to see what happens next. Um, so it switches from teaching, dialogue, to narrative. And um, it's kind of a little bit of a long passage. I'm going to skip over a couple spots, but um, if my youth kids could read it all the way through, I think we can, we can do it together this morning. Um, so, and, and one of the things I really like about this passage in John is he, it's almost like watching a movie. He kind of gives us this frame-by-frame frame depiction of what's going on. So if you can just like use your imagination to get into the story, I feel like that will be really beneficial for us this morning. So starting in verse 1, when he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. He's talking, his men are his disciples. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish people that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep themselves warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
We're actually going to jump down to verse 25. So while Jesus is being questioned, we get another meanwhile. (laughs) Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, saying, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate instead came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. When I first read this passage, I also was in the middle of a book that I really love by Danny Silk. You can put the first quote up on the screen. And I read this quote, and I really wanted to start with this. People who really know God can do shocking things. They can do powerful things. They can love people that many would declare unforgivable and impossible to love. For some reason, when I read this, it kind of hit me in a place in my heart, or a place in my stomach, honestly, because when I think about things, shocking things that Jesus does, loving his enemies usually isn't what actually comes to mind first. Um, I love the shiny stuff. I love the passages where he washes his disciples' feet, where he does these crazy awesome healings, he multiplies food, um, or reading his teachings through his insightful parables. I mean, his parables are wild. Those are, to me, what is shocking. Um, But I started to wonder if what I think is shocking might be different than what Jesus thinks is shocking. And this quote hit me because it made me start to wonder, like, do I actually value what he values? If loving people is what is shocking, (laughs) the most shocking. Do I think of loving people, especially difficult people in my life, as the coolest thing that I could ever do? And as I read this passage, it was exactly this Jesus otherworldly kind of love that kept standing out to me. Um, And how he's able to love 
his enemies, who are actually his friends, betraying him um, throughout this passage. So we're going to start with this. My first point is Jesus knows the pain. I'm really just going to like pull out what I felt like the Lord told me from the passage. Um, just lay it out in like four or five little points. So my first one is Jesus knows the pain of betrayal. And betrayal is so painful. It's so painful. It's not actually about being stabbed in the back. It's not, that's not what makes it painful. It's who stabs you in the back. We're all familiar, or most of us are familiar with A2 Brute or um, U2 Brutus, which refers to Julius Caesar when his, he sees his friend joining his assassins. For a Roman leader at that time, like getting assassinated was super common and honestly likely. Um, but we remember that story because it was his own friend who was the one assassinating him the one who he trusted to stand up for him and protect him, Brutus instead sunk a knife into his back. To be betrayed is to be deeply harmed by someone who's from your own group, your friend, a spouse, a coworker, not just a stranger, um, but someone who knows you, and it hurts. And I think we can all think of a time where we've experienced some form of betrayal, um, whether it was like when we were really young in middle school. I mean, a lot of things, honestly, that affect us now in adulthood happen to us in middle school, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so like some, someone says they're your friend and then they're not, and they talk bad behind your back, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm just not going to trust people anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, it could be something like that. It could be when a boss chose not to stand up for you, um, when a board of directors maybe didn't have your back, uh, when a spouse lied to you or a boyfriend or a girlfriend wasn't the person that you thought they were. And so we know what it feels like to be betrayed. Um, but as we read through this passage, we can see that Jesus also knows what it feels like to be betrayed. In the beginning, it says Judas finds them in the garden. He finds them in their secret spot. He knew exactly where they were going to be. He had the inside track to the plans. And he brings enemies right into that space. But what's interesting to me is throughout this passage, he's not only betrayed by Judas, who I think is really easy to villainize. We all want to separate ourselves from Judas as much as we can, you know? It's like, <laughs> we don't really understand that guy. Um, but while he was being questioned, Jesus is being questioned, and, and I didn't read that part for the sake of time, but he's getting slapped around, his best friend Peter was also betraying him. And I read a lot of articles that were trying to explain away the difference between denial and betrayal, but I kind of have a hard time seeing the difference because the result is the same. It's choosing fear over love and that in choosing to hurt someone that you love, someone that's close to you. Um, and one was premeditated and one wasn't, but the result is the same. And Peter, like many of us, I mean, it's clear he betrayed his Lord because he was afraid. We can assume that he wondered if they had arrested Jesus, what would happen to him? would he end up on a cross as well? Rather than stand beside his Lord and his friend, he pretended not to know him. So ultimately, Jesus faced his death, both betrayed and deserted by those closest to him. And I have to say, I don't think it hurt less just because he was God. <laughs> like, he knows what the pain feels like. So my second, my second point, is, so Jesus knows the pain of betrayal, but he also willingly chose to be betrayed. Jesus wasn't duped. <laughs> we see in this text that he even reinitiates his capture. So in verses five through eight, when he responds, I am he to his captors, they literally fall backwards. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. I've, ne I've read John a bunch of times. That never stood out to me until this reading. 
Um, but he says, I am he, and they fall to the ground. <laughs> Can you imagine being there? In this moment of profound surrender, he had an insane amount of power like emanating off of him. He spoke, and people just went flying to the ground. And in my mind, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to walk away from his destiny in that moment. But instead, he lays that power aside and gives himself up. Jesus went to the cross willingly in his greatest strength because it was his moment of greatest surrender to the Father. And I think sometimes we think of Jesus getting led away. You know, we, we know he chose, but we think of him as weak, but he went out as the strongest we've ever seen Jesus. In verse 34, oh, sorry, I missed my seam sentence. <laughs> and I think this, <laughs> sorry, uh, I think this points to how upside down the kingdom of heaven is. Um, you know, we talk about it all the time. The least are the greatest. The wisdom of man is the foolish. The wisdom of men is foolishness. Um, and in your surrender, you're the most strong. And in verse 34, when Jesus is talking with Pilate, he, he says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus says this to Pilate, but we get to see this extreme contrast in Jesus' behavior, this contrast of kingdoms as Jesus willingly hands himself over. And his followers clearly want to fight to protect him. You know, Peter goes so far as to cut off someone's ear, which I feel like is the equivalent of a warning shot if you have like a sword. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, ah, don't. Come by me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've never used a sword, clearly. Um, but uh, they're ready to fight. And honestly, it kind of they probably were really confused because they just saw everyone fall to the ground when Jesus said, I am he. And so they're probably revved up and ready to go. They're like, all right, let's do this. Let's get them. Then uh, John doesn't mention this, but in Luke 22, we get to see that Jesus comes back around and heals this man's ear. Um, and so I just think, imagine you're in that garden for a moment. Just imagine this contrast of kingdoms. Judas walks up with this crew of men with torches, and they're angry and scary. Jesus asks them who they seek. They fall to the ground when he says, you got me. And now his followers are fighting, and he's going around and, like, healing and, like, healing their mistakes. <laughs> Jesus' behavior in this passage is so otherworldly. It's so otherworldly. I'm sure even his disciples had a hard time stomaching it because they were like, why isn't Jesus fighting with us? And Jesus alludes to this interaction in his conversation with Pilate um, when he says it's not of the, his kingdom's not of this world. He's basically saying, the way I live, the things I came to do are not of this world. The way I'm going to love this world is going to mess with your ideas of what kingdoms look like. Because the truth Jesus talks about when it comes to testify to the truth, is that God sent his only son to die so that the world might be saved from their sin. But people don't want to be saved that way, and they don't want to be saved from their sin, usually. They want God to send his son to defeat their personal enemies and champion their personal projects. So what Jesus came to do was a mission from another world to rescue us from ourselves. And... 
yeah, that we just continue to see this contrast at the end of the chapter when Pilate, who's clearly like Jesus is, I don't know who Jesus is, but I don't want to kill him. Um, and so he's trying to get Jesus out of jail. And instead, the people choose Barabbas. Now, the, the NIV says he took part in an uprising, or at least John says that, but in other gospels, um, they call him a revolutionary. He was most likely a zealot, and he was definitely a murderer. So he's the kind of person that's going to fight for what they want. People reject Jesus because they don't want this upside-down kingdom. You know, Jesus chose to be at the bottom. We see that. He chose to be at the bottom in this passage. And I don't know about you guys, but we don't always want a kingdom where we're at the bottom. We, we want to be at the top or as close to the top as we can. But in the scramble to get up to the top, we miss the truth and we end up missing the love that Jesus has on offer. And this is a very Laura opinion. This is something that's been like on my mind lately, but I've been starting to wonder if like as God's people, we suffer because God's heart is big enough for our enemies also. Because God's heart was big enough for us while we were still enemies. And this is why Jesus, his own son, suffered in the first place. So it seems to me like God is okay with us being at the bottom if that's like where Jesus was. <laughs> Either way, that's a opinion, but Jesus is clear. In the face of betrayal, he shows us another way, a way that's not of this world. And what's wild to me is in verse 4, it says that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. And um, kind of fun, I just randomly opened to Mark 14 yesterday and like in my quiet time, and it was the passage where Jesus explains to his disciples and explains to Judas that they're going to do what they're going to do, and they have no idea what he's talking about. Um, and it was crazy because he tells them, he tells them everything that's going to happen. He tells them one of them is going to betray him. He tells them they're all going to fall away. And I don't know how Judas wasn't peeing his pants because I honestly, I don't understand how Judas was like, Jesus kind of says it a lot. One of you will betray me. And he's still like hanging around. <laughs> did, did he like not see himself? Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't see himself that way. You know, we, we don't always see ourselves accurately. Um, but when Jesus says everyone's going to fall away, this is when Peter is like, never, I am never going to fall away. I'm going to stick with you to the end. I'm going to die for you. He actually says that. Um, and Jesus tells him, no, Peter, you're actually, you're going to do it three times. <laughs> Everyone else is going to do it once, but you're going to do it three times. <laughs> Dang. Uh, so Jesus knew, knew everything that was going to happen to him, and he had very specific knowledge. He knew Jesus, Judas and Peter and all of his disciples were going to betray him. And you know what? He washed their feet anyway. He gave them communion anyway. He dips the bread and gives it to Judas. He joked with them. He hugged them. And he talked with them anyway. Jesus invested in people that he knew were going to break his heart. What a different way of doing things. <laughs> I tell you what, I don't, I don't do that. There are a handful of people in my life who have really hurt me. And if someone were to like pull me aside um, and been like, hey, you know that person, you're gonna do this and this and this for them, but they're gonna do this to you. Would I stick around? Would I keep investing in that person? No, I would probably peace out before they could hurt me. I have pretty avoidant tendencies, if I'm being honest. 
I, I'm the person when I get scared, I run away. <laughs> like, like I don't even think about it, I'm just gone. And then I'm like over somewhere else and I'm like, oh, okay, flight is my response to fear. Um, yeah, I, I, I probably would. And I, honestly, our current culture would applaud that. It's all the rage right now. Like edit people out of your life so you can be happy. Never mind that you become a sensitive little stinker in the process. <laughs> that can't handle people that are different from you and disagree with you, much less betray you. To what the world says, unfriend, delete, avoid, Jesus says, forgive and restore. Jesus' heart was big enough to love Judas and Peter to hold their betrayal and love them anyway. And we can't throw them under the bus very far because <laughs> we all have this to face. We, like Peter and Judas, have betrayed our Lord in one way or another. And based completely on his love and not our merit, he has chosen to forgive and restore us back to life. And so the beauty of this text to me is that like Jesus' heart is big enough for them. It's big enough for us, too. It's big enough for the parts of us we are ashamed of and we don't really want people to know about. So how do you do this? How is Jesus' heart so big? <laughs> well, it'd be really, Jesus was God, so I could just say that. Um, but like we talked about in our Luke series, Jesus was also a man, and he's our template. He shows us what we can be like, too. And I really believe that he allowed intimacy with God to rule his life. He knew God. His times of prayer and communion with God alone in the garden when he would just go off by himself had so shaped his heart that his loving relationship with God is what dictated his actions more than the tension of his earthly relationships. The quote I started with said, people who know God can love in shocking ways. This type of love is not possible without knowing the type of love, this type of love intimately oneself. And so to understand this, I think we need to actually jump back into the story. And I'm not going to read a whole nother chapter. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe it. I'm going to tell the story. Um, we don't get to see Jesus restore Judas. We don't know that story. Um, but we do get to see Jesus, Jesus, well, Jesus, Jesus restored Peter just a few chapters later in John 21. And so, here we go. Peter is struggling. He has betrayed his Lord. And now he hears that Jesus has resurrected. resurrected. Oh, hold on. And I'm sure the shame he felt at that moment is incalculable. He denied his Lord in death. How can he share in the joy of his resurrection? So in shame, he returns to his lifestyle before Jesus called him. He goes fishing. And what's crazy to me is Jesus, we see Jesus come to the beach, beach to meet and restore Peter. And he does the exact same miracle that he did with Peter the first time that he called him. So when he calls Peter, Peter, for the first time, way, way, way earlier in John, three years earlier, I might add, I think that's kind of actually kind of important for us to realize that Peter spent three years with Jesus and went right back to his life before that. Uh, he's fishing, and they don't catch any fish. They fish all night, and this man on the beach, Jesus, 
says, hey, try throwing your nets on the other side. And so they do, and they bring up this huge catch of fish, and the boat is like sinking, and they come to the beach, and Jesus says, follow me. And Peter follows him. He leaves his nets. Well, he, Jesus does the exact same thing again. So Peter is out there again, fishing all night, probably the same beach, maybe not, but this random guy on the shore again is like, hey, try throwing your nets on the other side. Jesus. I'm kind of like, I wonder at what point he was like, huh, I feel like I've done this before. I feel like I've seen this before. Um, but he catches this heavenly catch of fish, this crazy catch of fish, and the boat starts sinking again. And Peter, it says Peter recognizes it's the Lord. He remembers. He's like, I have done this before. I've seen this miracle before. And so he swims to shore right away. And Jesus is there with breakfast. He made him breakfast. His response to Peter's failure was not like wagging his finger at him. And it wasn't, I spent three years with you. You should have known better. You know how many people I would want to say that to that I've invested in? <laughs> like, I spent so much time with you. Why, why, did you, why did you walk away from the Lord? Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus makes him food. His response is a meal to share. And after that meal, then Jesus and Peter have a conversation. And I'm really thankful that Jesus isn't just, doesn't just make us a meal. Like, he does make us a meal. He meets us, he feeds us, he takes care of us, but he also calls us higher. And he calls us out and he wants to talk with us about, about what's going on. <laughs> so after that meal, Jesus and Peter have this conversation. And Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. Two times he asks Peter if he loves him with the agape kind of love, which if you're familiar with that word, that is the Greek word for love that is sacrificial in nature and unconditional. It's a type of love where one's like willing to lay their life down. Um, but Peter doesn't respond, yes, I agape love you. Something happening up high? You guys made me snort. <laughs> that was like a nervous snort. Weird. Okay. Well, Lord, keep the rest of it up there, I guess. Um, yeah, so Jesus is asking him if he loves him in this sacrificial kind of way. And Peter responds that he phileo loves him, which is actually a different term of love. I think it's the type of love that we typically use or think of. It's like, I really like you. I really love you. I care about you. I would do anything for you, but it's not the same thing as sacrificial, lay your life down um, kind of love. It's more like, you're my best friend, of course. Of course I love you, Jesus. Uh, so the last time Jesus asks him, he again meets Peter exactly where he's at, and he asks him if he phileo loves him. And Peter says that he does. And the crazy thing to me is that Peter did agape love his Lord. And we get to see it in Acts when he's crucified upside down for his love and devotion to Jesus. After Jesus asks him these questions, he actually alludes to the death that Peter would die for him. He says, I know what you're going to do. You don't know that you agape love me yet, but I know that you will. Jesus knew Peter's destiny, even if Peter didn't have faith for it at the time. So I just felt like this needed to be said this morning. Like, you can be restored by Jesus, even if you have no vision for it. And if you walked away for, if you walked with him for like 10 years and you walked away from him for like three, 
and you feel him tugging at your heart again, you don't have to like have a vision for exactly what it's going to look like going forward. Like he has that for you. And so I love this. I love the rawness of Peter's story because I totally see myself in it. I see even like this week where I've believed lies and tried to go back to old ways and in doing so like betrayed the Lord. But I also see that he patiently meets me there. He doesn't meet me where I was before. He meets me there. He meets me when I don't believe all the way and when I lack the vision for it. He restores me anyway. So it's really easy. I, I, it's really easy to talk about love. We talk about love all the time. It, it's the most important thing the Bible says. Um, but it's so important for us to see what it looks like, not just talk about it like an idea. And that brings me to my, my fourth point, which is Jesus is agape love with clothes on. So he's the one who shows us what it looks like and what it can look like in our, for us and in our everyday relationships. So not only do we get to see it in Jesus, but we're also invited to participate. Jesus' spirit within us is actually able to build in us a love like Jesus had. However, I think that we tend to reduce agape love to a beautiful idea instead of becoming it with our lives. But there is a way to become it. There is a way to become love with your life. And it's 100% rooted in connecting to the loving heart of the Father, not in trying to like sweat it out and be and love people the best you can. There, there's this progression to love that we get to see in 1 John 4, 17 through 19. You want to pop that up there? This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's this progression to love in all of it. It underlines it, it's on top of it, it's all around it, it boxes it in, is that he loves me. He loves me. And if he loves me, then because of that, maybe I can love me. And if I can love someone as annoying as me, <laughs> then maybe I can love others. And if I can love someone as annoying as others, maybe I can even love my enemies. But it's all rooted in he loves me. Instead of canceling, which that one is really popular right now, ignoring, that one's really easy to do, hating, that one will rip your heart out, um, gossiping about the people who hurt us, we can actually begin to share in his love for them because he's already loving them. We get to be loved with clothes on too. This text is clear, as he is, so we are in the world, and it's not glamorous. <laughs> like we talked about earlier, it's an upside-down kingdom. Sometimes it looks like uh, loving and sacrificing for and forgiving the people in our lives that drive us bananas, that we'd rather just avoid, you know? And I like to imagine that I'm living out agape kind of love. You know when I think of myself, superhero Laura, when I'm not thinking about myself always, right? <laughs> Um, but I've been greatly humbled by reading these passages. Um, I've been greatly humbled by being pregnant. 
<laughs> Let me tell you. Things have come out of my mouth that I have been shocked. Like, I didn't know that was in my heart. Putting this teaching together, really there's only one thing that stood out to me the most, and it's how crazy it is that Jesus loves us the way that he does. Like, I want to love people like that, but it's crazy that he loves me like that, that he loves you like that. He's so much better. He's so much better than I thought. He's so much more shocking and powerful than I thought because he loves, he loves like this all day, every day. God loved us while we were still enemies and he will love us tomorrow if we break his heart again because that is who he is. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive this gift of love unto forgiveness. We now get to participate in Jesus' otherworldly lifestyle of love. We see this in John 20, when Jesus meets with his disciples for the first time, he breathes on them. It's kind of funny. <laughs> he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. But right after that, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I think first mention is really important. Like the Holy Spirit is given to us to love and forgive people. <laughs> Jesus clearly values that. He values forgiveness and restoration of relationships. It's what he bought for us with God on the cross. And it's the first thing that he invites us into when he gives us his spirit. Every forgiveness and every act of undeserved love is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to finish by reading the whole quote. I read you just the end. But it's pretty good. No matter what miraculous things God is doing around you and through you, you must never lose sight of this priority. All the signs, wonders, gifts, and supernatural events in the world do not prove that you are connected heart to heart with God. Jesus warned about the last days when people will come to him and ask, didn't I prophesy the pain off the wall? Didn't I do amazing things in your name? And they'll hear him say, I never knew you. Do you want Jesus to know you? Do you want to know him? Then love him and love others. The Bible couldn't be more clear about this. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. And beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there's a, there's a little more. There we go. Thank you so much. <laughs> let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves God is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. People who really know God can do shocking things. They can do powerful things. They can love people that many would declare unforgivable and impossible to love. Do you guys stand with me? Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.